0: Father, we do ask for the teaching ministry of your spirit. We pray that we would clearly understand what you're saying. So give us a spirit of illumination of your word, a spirit of revelation and understanding. Enable us to receive your word and to be benefited by it, Lord, that we might really understand how you want this church to really function, the family to function. So guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in First Timothy that we started last Sunday. Last Sunday we saw that the Apostle Paul, he urged young Timothy to stay in Ephesus, he said, in order to really charge certain men to stop teaching strange doctrines. In other words, you know, stand for the truth there in Ephesus, Timothy, fight for it, pass it on, and that's really the, the fullness of what he was really saying in, in chapter 1. Now we get to chapter 2. He's going to exhort young Timothy to set some things in order in the corporate gathering, corporate worship gathering of the church. And so let's just jump right into that. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So right off the bat, we see that Paul sees the church as first and foremost as a worshiping and praying community. And he points out that there needs to be an emphasis on praying for all people. Now, he's going to get particular here now in the next verse. Particularly, Paul directs the churches to pray for kings and those who are in authority. First Timothy 2, the first part of verse 2, pray for kings and all who are in authority. Now uh, Keep in mind that when Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings, the reigning emperor at that time was Nero. And his Nero's hostility and hatred toward Christians and Christianity was off the charts. And yet we see that Christians are to pray for all those in leadership, whether or not you like them or not, whether or not you voted for them or not. Whether you like President Trump or not, we're commanded to pray for him. Whether you voted for him or not, he needs our prayers. But why? Why should we pray for our governmental leaders? That's what he says in the rest of verse 2. He says, we're to pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So Paul is specifically directing the church to pray for national leaders. Why? So we can live in peace and freedom from war and freedom from civil strife. Why? That's what he says in the next verse. Verse Timothy 2, 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the point is that Peaceful conditions will facilitate the spread of the gospel. So he's saying this, it's important to pray for leaders because leaders are going to be making all kinds of decisions that can impact our conditions here on the ground. And it's better that we have, we pray for them so we can have peaceful conditions because we'll better be able to advance the gospel in our community and around the country Now, notice that peace is not the main thing that we're praying for. We're praying, the main thing is salvation. But peace will provide the conditions for us being able to propagate the gospel more effectively. And tranquility isn't the goal either. The knowledge of the truth of God is the goal. So, the reason we're supposed to pray this way why? It's because God wants all people saved. That's his point. God loves all people regardless of race, class, tribe, economic, economic status, education level. And God loves all people and God wants all people saved. And if we're the people of God, then we ought, ought to have God's heart. And that means we should also love all people and want all people saved. We shouldn't have any racism In our church, any nationalism, any tribalism, any classism, that shouldn't exist in any church. It may exist out there, but it should never exist in here. Why? Because God loves all people and wants all people saved, and that's how we should feel as well. I was ministering several years ago in Bulgaria with a small team, and our goal was to saturate one one city in southern Bulgaria by the name of Kyrgyzli. Our goal was to saturate it with the gospel in just nine days. We had the Jesus film in Bulgaria, Bulgarian, we had the Jesus film in Turkish because 40% of the city was Turkish. And we were going to every town square, you know, nine nights in a row showing the Jesus film. We actually were stopped by a group of thugs that the Eastern Orthodox Church sent out to stop us physically in one particular square, but we just kept going around it and went to some other ones. But I, I learned that there was a part of the city that was called the Gypsy Quarter, it was a, it was, there was a quarter of the city that was known for the gypsies. They had kind of taken over. Turkish gypsies had taken it over. The Bulgarians and the Turks hated each other, and they hated the gypsies as well. And, the, and the actually, the Bulgarian church that we were working with was on a corner, and across the street from that church was the beginning of this, this gypsy quarter. And so I asked a question, because as we're just you know, trying to saturate the whole city, I wanted to saturate every part of the city with the gospel. And so I asked, asked about this court. I said, has anybody ever gone there from your church to share the gospel? And that church had been there for years. And the pastor said, no one from our church has ever been there. I said, no one from your church has ever crossed the street and gone in to talk to these people. He said, no. And then I said, Well, I'm gonna take our team in there. So, would some of you like to come? None of them wanted to come. I got one translator to come, and we went in there. And when we were when we walked into this, this kind of very village-like this part of the city, very rundown, we were greeted, you know, just with, with jubilation. And then one of the leaders of the village says, uh, what do you, why are you here? We said, we're here to, to tell you about Jesus and show you a movie that tells you about him. You want to see it? He said, yes. And he got the, he, he said, I'll get everybody to come tonight. And he did. He got everybody to come. We had, at the end of the movie, we had 30 people stand up saying they wanted to begin to follow Jesus Christ. And, but here's the deal. That should have, I mean, the Bulgarian church had already been doing that. You know, we have to have if we're going to have the heart of God that God wants all people saved. He loves all people. We can't let racism stop us from reaching out. That should not be in the church. That should not be in any of our hearts. God wants all people saved, and so should we. So, how are people saved? That's what he says next. First Timothy five. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse five and six. For there is one God and one mediator, also. Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. So here Paul, the apostle Paul makes it quite clear. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way to God. There's only one mediator between man and God. Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear in his passage. In fact, Jesus' unique qualifications are what makes him the only mediator possible. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying there's only one way, there's only one road, there's only one path, there's only one mediator, it's him. And he's uniquely qualified to be the only mediator. Why is he uniquely qualified? Well, his unique qualifications for being the only way to God are found in his person and in his work, in who he is and in what he has done. All right, so who is he? Well, he, Paul says in this verse, is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, of course, we also know there's many, there's hundreds of verses that point out that he is God come in the flesh, he is gospel God. But here, Paul is emphasizing that he's the man Christ Jesus. Just earlier in some verses, he points out his deity when he says this, that he came into the world to save sinners. He, talking about Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, which assumes a preexistent purpose and decision made by him, because he's preexistent, because he's God. The Son of God becomes a man. But Paul's emphasizing his humanity by saying the man Christ Jesus here, why? Why is that important? It's important... Because if he's going to be a mediator who's going to represent both God and man, then he needs to be both God and man. And that's why he did that. So he could mediate between God and man. That's who he is. Now, but what about his work? What did he do that is uniquely qualifies him to be the one mediator? What he did, it says in verse 6, is he gave himself as a ransom for all men. He gave himself means what? It means that he sacrificed himself. He offered himself voluntarily. He offered himself deliberately as a sacrifice for our sin. In fact, the phraseology here really kind of echoes back to Isaiah 53 that was prophesied hundreds of years before the death of Christ and actually describes what Messiah would do when he comes. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says this, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. So Jesus offers himself voluntarily, deliberately, as a sacrifice for our sin. He dies in our place. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He takes our sin upon himself, absorbs the judgment that we should have had. But he goes on to say he gave himself as a ransom. Now, ransom was the price paid for the release of slaves and captives, which, by the way, is exactly what we were before coming to Christ. We were enslaved to sin, and we were being held captive by the devil. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and dies in our place, he's paying the price to set us free from both. Set free from from being enslaved to sin, set set free from captivity to the devil. So Paul says this in verse 7, 1 Timothy 1, 7. And for this, I was appointed a preacher. For this great good news, for this awesome gospel, for this truth that everybody needs to hear because God wants everybody saved. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And by the way, you too, and I, we've have, we have all in this room and those online who know Christ, You, we have been appointed. We have been appointed to herald this good news. All of us have. Just think about that. Just let that sink in. You've been appointed. It's like Paul says, I've been appointed to herald this news. You've been appointed to, to spread this good news. Spread it in your neighborhood. Spread it in your workplace. Spread it, spread it in your school, your classrooms. We've been appointed for this. Never forget this. In fact, this week, when you're about you're going to work or school or at home or recreating, whatever you're doing, just remember, as you make your way around this community this week, you've been appointed to herald good news. Don't hold it back. Don't keep it a secret. Aren't you glad that somebody told you one day? And so share this good news. You've been appointed to do so. So that's really the first half of chapter 2. Paul's saying that because there's one God and because there's one mediator because all people are loved by God and God wants all people saved that the church ought to be praying for all people and ought to be proclaiming the gospel to all people that's the point of the first half of chapter 2 now he's going to kind of shift gears a little bit and he's going to turn from this priority the priority and scope of the local church's prayers and proclamations to the respective roles of men and women and how they are to function in corporate worship when the church gathers together to worship together he wants some things to be in, in order. So he's going to lay out some order for Timothy to pass on. Let's pick it up. Verse 8. 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So the posture of lifting up hands when, when they pray was something they were probably already doing. What Paul wants to make sure is that those hands are holy. He wants to make sure that there's no dissension or wrath or bitterness between anybody that would hinder their prayers from being effective. In fact, this, uh, this kind of echoes back to Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, where it says this, the psalmist says, who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the person who can be effective in their prayers one who has clean hands and a pure heart. So we can't effectively approach God in our prayer life if we're harboring any resentment or bitterness. So Paul makes sure that people understand that. that He wants their prayers to be effective. Make sure that when you lift these hands, these are holy hands, there's no resentment between you and anybody else. Well, Paul's going to continue to give direction regarding the corporate worship of the church. Here's what he says next. Verse 9 says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women, making a claim to godliness. So now Paul is going to point out that women are to be, first of all, he emphasizes, discreet and modest in their dress. In other words, not to wear anything to the public gathering that would be, would, you know, be distracting, that would be deliberately suggestive or seductive. Now you might think, well, that's kind of a duh thing. How you get to tell that to people? Yes, you do. He had to tell it then, and it needs to be reminded to us today, that it, we need to you know, women need to dress in a way that is not suggestive or seductive. And you think, is that, has that ever been a problem? I, I, I tell you, I remember in the old building across from Arlington High School. I remember one Sunday. It was summertime, and people were getting more and more, you know, casual in their dress. I remember one one Sunday in a communion line, there's two gals in hot pants and tube tops. And, you know, no one was, we didn't want to say anything to embarrass them or judge but we had a couple of godly women in the church just kind of talk to them privately about what's appropriate to wear and uh, into, into a worship gathering. And so Paul's emphasizing that when we come together in worship, he's talking about some things that ought to be in order. One is is how... Uh, women dress. They shouldn't adorn themselves with clothing that, and hairstyles and jewelry that, that's extravagant or vain and trying to draw attention to themselves because really he's saying the, what you really want to do is you want to get God's attention. And the best way to do that is for everyone to not be focusing on yourself, but be doing good works to others, serving others. So that's to be the focus in that worship gathering. But Paul continues to talk about the roles of men and women in the corporate worship meeting now before we go any further, I just want us to get a right understanding of what Paul is saying next, because a lot of people, you know, you, you know, only have, they haven't learned much about the Bible, and so they might, might be more impacted by a cultural understanding than by a biblical understanding. So I want us to have a little, i want to give you a little more background biblically to how to understand what God had in mind when he made man and made woman, so we can better understand what Paul is about to say. So what did God have in mind when He made man and he made woman? Well, first of all, He made both man and woman in His image. God made man and woman equal in their Godlike personhood. But God also made man and woman different in their manhood and womanhood. Before sin ever enters the world, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a loving, caring, strong leader for his wife, Eve. And before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve to be a partner who supports and honors that leadership and helps carry it through as a partner. And so this pattern, this original pattern, before sin enters in, is a beautiful pattern. God, remember, God is good, and he created a pattern that was going to be for our best, And we'd be most satisfied and most fulfilled by following that pattern. Because God is good. And it's also a pattern that will bring him the most glory. Keep that in mind. So this pattern starts off. It's a beautiful pattern. They respected each other. They served each other. They complimented each other. They enjoyed each other. Now what sin did was sin comes in and ruins this God-ordained harmony. So sin made men abandon servant leadership and become either passive or harsh and uncaring, and sin comes in and distorts the woman's support and honor into manipulation or defiance. So, what is Paul doing? We get to you know we get to Ephesians chapter five, where we won't have time to really walk through that this morning. If you're not familiar with, this, you might want to read it later. What Paul is doing in Ephesians five is he's calling for a recovery of God's original pattern. Now that you now that we're born again, have the Spirit of God living in us, let's go back and get things in the you know, appropriate God given, ordained design. So he talks about the role of the husband is to, is to take the primary responsibility for Christ like servant leadership and protection and provision for the home. And the role of the wife is to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through as a partner. And here's the deal. When a husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, then there's going to be a harmony and a mutuality. And it's going to be more beautiful and more satisfying and more more fruitful and effective than any pattern anyone else can come up with in marriage. Anybody could possibly dream of. So when a husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, what's going to happen? This is going to bring about the greatest satisfaction for both the man and the woman and the greatest glory for God. That's the whole plan. Now, having said that, the real test of, I think, whether we've grasped this simple biblical essence of manhood and womanhood and affirm it to be true and beautiful, the real test is whether Paul's application of it in the life of the church surprises and offends us or not. See, if the New Testament role for man and woman in marriage are rooted not in sinful pride, nor in cultural expressions or expectations, but are rooted in God's original design for creation. Then how would you expect this original design to express itself in the life of the church? That's the question. Well, let's walk through it next now, because Paul's going to tell us how, and we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to define these terms carefully. Because there's been, you know, there's been so many things, I think, misapplied, wrongly applied in, in, a, in a, the verses we're about to look at. So that's why I want to be very careful here that we get it correct. So here's what Paul says. Let me read it, and then we're going to walk through it. First Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14, he says this, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or, ex- or exercise authority over a man. But to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, again, before you automatically conclude what that looks like in the church, let's walk slowly through this and let's clarify the terms that Paul is using. The first term I think we need to make sure we clarify is the word that is used that's translated quiet. Verse 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, the word quiet here, some translations use the word remain silence. But is that really the word, the right translation? Because the same Greek word is used two other times in very nearby verses, the same Greek word. So let's see what it means there, and it'll help us understand what he means here. Okay, back in First Timothy 2.2, 2, verse we already went through, it says this, we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. There it is. In all godliness and dignity. Well, this gives us, you know, helps us understand the tone and the extent of this word because for us to be praying for our leaders that we can live a quiet life, we're not praying that we can live a life of total silence. Are we? Of course not. We're praying that we can live a life that's untroubled, a life that is serene and content. That's what we're praying for. So that's the same word there. Also, the word is also used at the end of verse 12. Same word is used again, but this time you can tell what Paul has in mind by the opposite. First Timothy 2.12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So not to have authority over men, but to remain quiet, that's the, that is the contrast. So in other words, this quietness is the opposite of exercising authority over men. Now, what sort of quietness does Paul have in mind? Well, it's the kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has ordained to oversee the church. See, verse 11 says that the quietness is in all submissiveness. Verse 12 says that the quietness is the opposite of authority over men. So the point is not that a woman can't speak, of course. The point is that she's submissive and she supports authority, the authority of the men that God has ordained to oversee the church, the elders of the church. So again, quietness means not speaking in a way that challenges that authority, that eldership authority. That's what he's talking about, the authority of the elders of the church. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think we'll see it all fit together. Let's look at another term, the term teaching. Second thing we need to look at is this reference to teaching in verse 12. He says, what is Paul talking about when he says, I do not allow a woman to teach? Now, to answer this one, we need to look at other places where Paul and others in scriptures talk about women teaching. And get an understanding here. For example, in Titus chapter two verse three, Paul actually exhorts the older women to teach the younger women, teach them how to love their husbands and their children, so forth. But also that's not the only place. Second Timothy 3:14, Paul tells Timothy, "Remember from whom you learn the scriptures." Who's he talking about here? Well, the person he has in mind, according to 2 Timothy 1:5, is his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. That's who taught in the scriptures. Timothy's father wasn't even a believer. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Greek. And he was not saved. And so Paul tells Timothy, remember who taught you the scriptures, your mother and your grandmother. They taught you. Another example is the example of Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. When Priscilla and her husband Aquila heard Apollos, they took him aside and expounded to him or taught him the way of God more accurately. So now we have Priscilla, helping teach Apollos more accurately the word of God. So Paul can't be saying in 1 Timothy 2.12 that every kind of teaching is forbidden to women. Of course not. There's examples of them teaching younger women, teaching children. Priscilla teamed up with her husband to teach Apollos. So Paul is clearly not making a general statement that does not allow a woman to teach. But he has something, he has some kind of situation in mind here. What situation is it? Well, again, I think the safest thing to do is for us to let the next phrase guide us. So many things can be cleared up in people's understanding in the Bible if they just read a little further. Get the context. What he says in the next phrase is, he said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. So he's, he's putting this, this teaching and this exercising of authority together in his thought right here. So At least one general thing we can say about women teaching is that Paul forbids it when it's part of the exercise of authority over men in the church. And when does that happen? Let's look at that third word, authority. Let's see how he uses it. By the way, you know, the very next thing Paul addresses after 1 Timothy 2 is 1 Timothy 3, where he talks about the qualifications for elders in the church. You can see his flow. He goes from talking about authority to talking about elders. In the church the very next chapter deals with qualifications for those authorities of the church the elders. And when you read about the role of elders in the church what you find out is, is the elders were to primarily govern and teach. First Timothy 5:17 says let the elders who rule or govern well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders rule or govern elders teach or preach. Again, so I don't think this is coincidental what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 2.12, that he does not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. He's saying this, I do not permit women to fill, to fill the office of elder in the church. The elders are charged with the leadership and instruction of the church. I mean, there's many people that can, can teach in the church, but those responsible for, for what happens in this area are the elders. So the authority that Paul has in mind in 1 Timothy 2.12, I believe, is the authority of elders. Now, what is that supposed to look like? Well, elder authority does not lead by some autocratic, authoritarian, you know, coercion, political maneuvering. Elders lead how? Elders lead primarily by persuasion through teaching. So the kind of teaching which is inappropriate for women, according to Paul here in scriptures, is a teaching that is part of expressing the authority spoken of here in verse 12. The very two things that are the primary jobs of the elders in the church to govern and to teach. So the authority of 1 Timothy 2.12 is most probably the governing authority of the eldership in the simplest way to describe what Paul says is inappropriate for women to do, is it's inappropriate for the women to be elders in the church. That's why I think Paul starts the next chapter, in the next verse, 1 Timothy 3.1, first chapter, he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then he gives qualifications that are clearly specific for men. So Paul's saying there's something here. Now, follow me on this. There's something about the way God set things up in the beginning, that makes this kind of order good, good in the home and good in the church. In other words, true manhood and true womanhood mesh more effectively in ministry. They're better preserved. They're better nurtured. They're more fulfilled. It's more fulfilling. It's more fruitful. If this pattern is actually done in the home and in the church, God made it to be this way. I mean, it's part of his original design and creation that that's the best way for it to work. Now, I understand I'm I'm speaking in the midst of a culture that would think I'd lost my mind. But again, this is the goodness of God. If if, if the men are leading like they're supposed to be in the home, then women are going to be most satisfied in it. I'm not talking about someone who takes these verses and uses them like a club and and, and doesn't use them right. No. We're talking about taking them as they really are taught here. It's where their home will be the most healthy and the church will be the most healthy. And so now Paul is going to give two reasons for this. Two reasons for saying that men and not women should bear the primary responsibility of leading and teaching the church as elders. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Here's his reasons. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. You'll note right away that neither one of these reasons are cultural. So let's take a look at them. First of all, verse 13, there was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Now, the point here, I think, is very simple. God created man first, put him in the garden, gave him the responsibility over the garden and, the, and over just the moral pattern of the garden, and then he created a woman as his partner to help him carry out that responsibility into action. In other words, Paul teaches that men should be the primary, primarily responsible for the governance and the teaching in the church. But he's not basing this on anything that's cultural. He's not basing it even on something, you know, that's, that, that was going on in Ephesus at the time. He's, he's basing this on creation. That's his basis. Before sin enters in, that's what he bases it on. A virtue of manhood and womanhood and creation. That's the first point he makes. Second point. 1 Timothy 2.14, And it was not Adam who's deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now here, most of the commentators throughout church history have taken this verse to simply mean that women are more vulnerable to deception and therefore should not be given the responsibility of leading and teaching the church. Is that correct? <laughs> Statistics say that six times more men than women are arrested for drug abuse. Ten times more men than women are arrested for drunkenness. 83% of serious crimes in America are committed by men. 25 times more men than women are in jail. Most of all, rape is committed by men. Now, having said all that, let's take a look back at Genesis 3, and let's see what really happens here. Back to Genesis 3, and I think we'll see what, what's going on here. First Timothy 2.14, when he says, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Okay, Genesis 3, here we have Satan in the the form of a serpent speaks to the woman, not the man. Notice that. Let's look at Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman. So first thing I want you to notice, because Paul saw that and saw that as significant. The second thing I want you to notice is that Adam is evidently with Eve while Satan's talking to her. When we come to verse 6, when the woman is about to eat the forbidden fruit, here's what the verse says. Let's read it. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her. NIV says, who was with her? And he ate. Do you see that picture? Here she is. She's getting the fruit. She gives in to the temptation, deception. She eats it. She hands it at him, and he's standing like a doofus, and he just eats it. <laughs> I mean, that's the picture. It doesn't say that she went to get him. It doesn't say that he arrived in the scene after the serpent was gone. It moves directly from her eating to handing it to him and him eating, and he's with her. Now, again, I, Remember that Adam was given the responsibility to lovingly lead his wife. Together they were to rule the earth and everything on it. And they were given one thing not to do. They were not to eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one thing. So the devil comes to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Eve is deceived, eats the fruit. But where's Adam? He's standing right there with her. You know, why don't we hear, hear him intervening? Why don't we hear him arguing with the devil? No, 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 you got that wrong. Why don't we see him step in between Eve and the devil and say, no, whoa, this stops here. We don't see any of that. Where, where is the activity of a man that you would expect? He's not active at all. He's passive. In fact, you know, if you were just to land from another planet on earth and get all your understanding of manhood and womanhood by watching TV and commercials, you would conclude that women are strong and assertive and men are passive doofuses. Because that's how it's portrayed on TV over and over and over again. You know, the church around the world needs men who will reject passivity The Great Commission needs men who will reject passivity. You know, people, I've I've oftentimes wondered, why are two-thirds of the pastors in China women? And why are two-thirds of the missionaries on planet Earth women? And I tell you, I thank God for women who've stepped up because I'm telling you, we'd never get the Great Commission fulfilled without women. (laughs) But my question is, where are the men? I mean, I'm not down on the women's stuff, and I'm just like, where are the men? Why aren't there more men there to stop being passive and be active? Well, let's go look back at Genesis 3 now. The third thing I want you to notice is when God, you know, first of all, I think, I think the devil knew the order. I think he knew the order, and that's why he went to Eve. I think he purposely went to her to, to go against the entire order God set up. Because it's interesting, when God rebukes Adam and Eve, he rebukes, he goes to Adam I want you to notice what God disapproves of, though. Obviously, he disapproves of the eating of the forbidden fruit. But I want you to know, notice what he says to Adam. Genesis three seventeen. He reprimands Adam, says this. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and I've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, these words are interesting. You listen to the voice of your wife I think that's significant because there's no record anywhere in chapter 3 that Adam said anything. I mean that Eve said anything to Adam. But there's good reason to believe that Adam was there. He's listening to this interchange between the serpent, the devil, and Eve, and he's falling in line behind her. That's what I think God's talking about. Again, notice that God's reprimand is not, again, not just a reprimand of, of, of Adam eating the forbidden fruit. It's that I think the reprimand is that you forsook your responsibility to be the leader and the moral guide of your home. That's what you did. And Satan, subtly, again, I think he knew the created order. I think he knew what was ordained for good, and I think he deliberately defied it. He ignored the man. He ignored him purposely and goes straight to Eve. So Satan puts Eve as a spokesman, the leader, and the defender. And at that moment, at that moment, both the man and the woman slipped, I think, from innocence and let themselves be drawn into a pattern of relating to each other to this day that is destructive. John Piper paraphrases 1 Timothy 2.14, and I just want to put how he does it up here because it helps us understand what's really happening. So put it up there on the screen, he says it this way. Adam was not deceived... That is, Adam was not approached by the deceiver. He did not carry out direct dealings with the deceiver. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That is, she was the one who took up dealings with the deceiver and was led through her direct interaction with him into deception and transgression. Now see, if this is right, then the main point is not that the man is undeceivable or the woman is more deceivable. That's not the point. The point is that when God's order of leadership is repudiated, it brings damage and ruin. Men and women are both more vulnerable to error and sin when they forsake the order that God has intended. So Paul's argumentation here in 1 Timothy 2, 11-14, is that men ought to bear the primary responsibility for leadership, teaching the church, that is, elders. Because... In Creating Man First, he says he gives two reasons. God taught that men should take responsibility for leadership in relationship to women. And because the fall of Adam and Eve shows the neglect of this divine pattern. And it puts men and women in a more vulnerable position that leads to transgression. So based on the word of God, based on the passages like this, that's why at Grace Green Church we have only male elders. But those elders are also supported by godly wives who help and support them in their roles as partners. And, listen carefully to the rest, and the rest of the church, both men and women, who honor and affirm the leadership and teaching of the elders, men and women who are gifted and equipped to do hundreds of other ministries in the church, to use their gifts, to use their, their talents, to serve Christ in that setting. That will be the most effective and healthy way for the body of Christ to function, and that will bring the most glory to God. Well, then Paul finally says this, 1 verse, verse, verse Timothy 2.15. He says, But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This verse is really ambiguous in its translation and in its brevity. So the question is, what is Paul saying here? I tell you, scholars and commentators on this verse are all over the map, and I've read a lot of them. What is Paul? In the heart of Paul, first of all, you see that Paul is obviously wanting to comfort uh, any Ephesian sisters in Christ who might have been offended up to this point. Obviously, there's something he's saying here that's consolation. What is he saying, though? Well, the best summary that I could find that actually deals with all the issues in this verse, and there are many, actually is the way the Amplified Bible translates it. The Amplified Bible is kind of a interpretive translation. And they really deal with the issues in this verse so well, I just thought, I'm just going to put that verse up there and let you see it, because it explains it so well. What he's saying is this, 1 Timothy 2.15, nevertheless... The sentence put upon women. Remember, he's gone back to the Genesis account. And part of that sentence on women was the, the, the pain of motherhood, the pain of bearing children. Nevertheless, the sentence put on women of pain and motherhood does not hinder their soul's salvation. They will be saved eternally. They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Saved indeed. Through the childbearing, this is part of the complication of this verse is there's a definite article. It's not just through childbearing. It's the childbearing. It's talking about something specific. The childbearing, that is, they'll be saved by the childbearing. What is that? That is the birth of the divine child. That is by the entrance of Christ into the world. So let me summarize it this way. Paul's bringing, I think what Paul's trying to do is bring his whole teaching on roles of women and men in t- back into pre- eternal perspective saying regardless of our roles, the bigger picture is that we are equally and eternally saved to the entrance of Christ into the world through a woman to die for our sins. So let's walk out our faith and let's all fulfill our destiny. That's how I think he wants us to end with that kind of perspective. So as we're ready to close in prayer for just a moment, I just, I tell you, I just want to, I'm amazed by it. I think we got so many men that really are functioning like really Christ like servant leaders who love their families and love this church family. They're serving that way in the home, they're serving that way in leadership in this church. We got great elders. We got humble elders. We don't have anybody lording over anybody in this church. They they take their responsibilities seriously. They humbly serve, they love, they shepherd. And we got a church full of great men and women. Gifted, are serving in all kinds of ministries, using their gifts in all kinds of ways freely, and I want to encourage that to continue on. In fact, I just I want to I want to stop by asking. I'd like to ask all the women in the church, would you just stand up for a second? Just stand, if you would. I just want you to know, and I know I speak on behalf of the elders in saying this, as, as I'm speaking, you know, as you know, as one of them, and say how much we. How much as elders, we totally appreciate and value the women of this church. We value you. We, we value your ministry. We value your gifts. And we want them used here. We want you to fulfill your ministry here in all the ways. And there's hundreds and thousands of ways to do it. And so we just, we're so grateful for you. And we want you to know how much we appreciate you. So guys, can we give it up for these women here? Now let's all stand. Let's all stand here. Before we close in prayer to I just want to say, if you have any questions for our staff, there's Connection Co- Coffee in the Corner. We'd love to answer them. If this is your first Sunday. I'd love to meet you down here in this welcome corner. If you have a prayer request, we'll have some of our leader couples up here that would love to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for the grace for us to walk it out rightly in a way that really honors you, in a way that blesses the men and women of this church family. So Lord, give us insight into all the ways you want this to be applied appropriately in the days to come. And Lord, we just also just uh, pray that you'd use us, Lord, as we, we also close by remembering that you love all people and want all people saved. Lord, would you just use us this week as people who shine the light in dark places around our community, everywhere we work and live and recreate, go to school, Lord, let us be those who herald this amazing message of truth of Jesus. So, Lord, we just pray that you continue to strengthen Grace Community Church, make us more and more looking like and acting like Jesus, we pray. In his name, everybody says amen, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day, a great week.